Hey, what's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Clean Libertarian Podcast. Thanks a lot for tuning in. Have a great episode lined out for you guys this week. Uh, This is Christopher Dreisbach, and he is the CEO over at Blueprints for Addiction Recovery. Uh, He is also a member of the recovery community. And I wanted to have Christopher on. He, he came highly recommended by my good friend, John Odermatt. Uh, you guys might know him from Lines of Liberty. Uh, and, and I love that, man. I love it when people you know know what I'm doing, know what this podcast is about, and refer people to me. So if you're listening to this and you got somebody that would be a good fit, send them my way. But uh, anyway, back to Christopher. As I said, he's he's doing big things in his community. He's also a member of Recovery. He shares a story. This is a great conversation, and I know that you guys will enjoy it. So without further ado, here is Christopher. All right, and I am here with Christopher Dreisbach. How are you doing, sir? Awesome. Awesome, man. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, absolutely, man. Um, we have a mutual, a mutual friend, Mr. John Odermatt, and he, you came very highly recommended. And um, I know that you're in recovery. I know you're also doing some great work with some organizations. And so I don't butcher your intro. Why don't you let my audience know who you are? Well, my name is Christopher Dreisbach. I'm the CEO of a place called Blueprints for Addiction Recovery. We're based here in beautiful Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Uh, that's where the Amish are. If you ever watch those terrible shows on A&E, and uh, I don't even know what the heck else they were on, probably every station ever in the early 2000s. Uh, that's all Lancaster. That's where we're at. And uh, while we do have some Amish folk running around here, uh, you know, a fair majority of it is, is pretty normal. Uh, so we do have a little city in our county. So we have a nice little quote hood, if you will, uh, right. where a lot of nefarious stuff occurs. And, you know, it's, it's a huge county here in Pennsylvania. And Blueprints is a state licensed treatment center. So we provide uh, inpatient and outpatient counseling, therapy, so on and so forth. Uh, more importantly, maybe not more importantly to some, but uh, for this purpose, I think more importantly would be our initiative called Second Chance uh, PA, where we teamed up with local law enforcement, 21 departments in total, and the local district attorney here for Lancaster County, and uh, created this crazy idea, this crazy, crazy program, where the police can actually help people who need help. And it might shock you, it might shock all of your listeners, but when you give somebody who has a drug problem treatment, it gets better. And so, most of the law enforcement officers here have been dying, clamoring for something like this, something where anytime, 24 hours a day, they're out on scene, they call in a certified recovery specialist, which is a silly Pennsylvania certification uh, for an individual who's been in recovery for 18 months minimum. Uh, They go through a little training course and get a certificate to be able to level with people uh, out in the field, if you will and uh, get them access to resources that they need. So uh, what will happen is if, for example, a law enforcement officer here in Lancaster County runs into a person with five bags of heroin. I don't know how heroin is distributed out in Tulsa, but uh, here it's in little bags. Uh And let's say you have five bags. 
that officer can completely forego charging you if you're willing to enter treatment. Now, that doesn't mean you have to enter treatment with blueprints specifically. It's just treatment. So the CRS goes out on scene wherever they are, on the side of the road, the side of the highway. Uh, we've responded to cornfields. We've responded to hotels all over the place. We've responded to woods behind Walmart. Uh, literally just anywhere you can think of that the police are, that they encounter somebody who needs help, um, they get to call a certified recovery specialist and get the individual they've encountered into treatment instead of incarceration. And why that is hugely important to me is because I am a person in long-term recovery. I'm a person who spent many hundreds of days in jail. And I do not think that that is the place for individuals who are struggling with Not substance use disorder or addiction. And I think that the novel concept of getting people help that they need when they need it in the moment of crisis uh, could literally end the ridiculous failed drug war and save countless millions of lives if it became a nationwide thing. I, but, I agree, man. Um, my question is, how does that work for the facility, so like, <clears throat> like out here, there's there's a waiting list in any facility unless you're paying top dollar. Obviously, if you're top dollar, you know you, you can get in there because who the fuck has, or sorry, who who has money? Whenever we come in the rooms, you know. But um, yeah. how does that work? Do, is there like a, a certain number of beds that just always remain open, or? Well, it's it's interesting how that works actually. So in Pennsylvania, uh, we have a very confusing system set up. It might shock you that the government is confusing, uh, but <laughs> if, you're, if you're an individual who has expensive insurance, uh, obviously it's very easy to find a bed. If you're a person who is in the gutter, homeless, broke, has nothing, uh, here in Pennsylvania, our county government has uh, an emergency detox fund and an emergency outpatient fund set up for any human that lives here in the county. Um, and they get funding and access immediately, which is kind of cool and kind of unique because um, not everywhere is as good. Even here in Pennsylvania, not every county is as good as Lancaster County. But any human that lives here can get immediate emergency access to treatment right away. And the number of beds that are available are spread out across numerous facilities. So it's pretty rare. I mean, we almost always guarantee within 24 hours of being able to find somebody a bed and often within the first hour or two. That's wonderful. Where does, um, where does that funding come from? So the funding for the County? Yes. That's a good gosh darn question, man. Okay. Probably the federal government. If I had to take a wild guess, uh, I'm sure the evil federal government sends it down to the evil state <laughs> government and then somebody pockets it and sends it down the line to the next one. You know, just moves, moves it on around like a, yeah. it's always sunny in Philadelphia. He's just like, it's a circle. It just keeps going. Um, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I, I was curious because like um, I, I did a recent somewhat recent interview with the guy who was on the ground level of getting the decriminalization bill passed in Oregon. Um and they had a unique way that they were funding an exact, very similar program. Um, but it wasn't just a, a twofold thing. They decriminalized. So instead of incarceration or rehab, it was fine or rehab. And so those fines actually paid for the rehabs of other people. I was just, 
shooting from the hip asking you, you know, no yeah. big deal if you didn't know. Yeah, I don't uh, I don't love the idea of finding somebody for having an item either because it's kind of <laughs> silly. Yeah. Uh, you know, I have on my personal criminal record, if you look it up on the, the state of Pennsylvania's you know, Department of Justice website, you can find that I have several possession of a hypodermic instrument crimes, uh, which are, you know, needles. I had a needle in my pocket. Right. Well, shockingly, you know, between 2004 and 2007, if you saw me, I had a needle in my pocket. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and back then, like we were just talking about before we went live here. Uh, you know, back then you couldn't even get a needle at the uh, pharmacy because they were just super illegal unless you were a diabetic. Right. So back in the olden days of yore, we used to have to go find them on the black market for five dollars a piece. You know, and uh, I mean, we've we've come a really long way in the last fifteen years, but we still have so so much further to go. And we, yeah, yeah. Here's the thing, too, and I've brought it up a few times. And I, I still believe that we are in the, the very beginning ages of fully comprehending this disease, mental, the, just really behavioral science as a whole. You know, I mean, it wasn't that long ago. There's people alive today that went through shock therapy for alcoholism. <laughs> I mean, that, that's a thing. We still lobotomize yep. people, you know, through lithium, you know, and, and, and things like that. So we still don't fully grasp it. So it's great to see society progressing to where they're kind of getting to a place where we can have these types of conversations without people like getting red in the face and screaming here in Oklahoma, it's a little bit more difficult in, in the more rural areas, but like in the urban areas, it is becoming easier. Um, so I, I'm sure you're the same way. I mean, cause well, look at what y'all have accomplished, you know, with this uh, program, you know, like that wouldn't have happened 10 years ago. You no, know, we couldn't at have all. had, a conversation like this 10 years ago. Right. Uh, and it's kind of wild to think about, uh, you know, the fact that, that I'm a convicted felon. And right now in my cell phone, I have multiple police chiefs phone numbers. And if I texted any one of those chiefs today, uh, they would, they would drop anything for me. I mean, Curious. they're just incredible, incredible people that really want to help. And, and with all this stuff that's been going on in law enforcement across the country, you know, it's made it a little bit more difficult to, you know, have friends like that and have people that are in that industry uh, who I'm close to because they get such a bad rap from some bad eggs. And, uh, you know, just here in Lancaster, for the most part, I can always speak to the fact that they're really caring and really, really go above and beyond to do what they can to help people. And I am, am pretty proud of the partnership that we have because Absolutely. there's, there's you... no way to, to get sober without, you know, running into some of those guys. And I never would have gotten sober if I didn't repeatedly get arrested over and over and over again. And, uh, you know, I just wish that when I was 18, one of those cops knew what was going on and had an answer because it could right. have saved me, you know, going back to jail at 19 and 20 and 21. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, how did you how did you foster such a relationship with these individuals? Like, how did you make that transition from, you know, uh, retread to respectable member of society? You know, well, that, that could be used loosely. Uh, you know, <laughs> how respectable I am, but, right. uh, 
you know, the, the long short of it was I, I got sober, jumped into Alcoholics Anonymous, and it taught me a different way to live. And I've, I haven't let go of that different way for the last, uh, you know, 14 years of my life, because my life is so much better now than it was previously that you just can't deny it. Even the most stubborn, you know, butthead in America couldn't deny uh, that my life is considerably greater than it was in 2006 and 2007 when I got sober. Uh, but what actually happened to start that program was we got a new police chief in this little tiny town of Elizabethtown. Here, you can Google it. You can Wikipedia it. Probably like five words long. It just says, ain't much happening. <laughs> you know, <laughs> just a little tiny borough. This little uh, spot. It's, huh? where we, it's where we had our first office uh, at Blueprints. And the new chief came from Pittsburgh, which is a slightly larger city here in beautiful Pennsylvania. And uh, being the new chief, we met up because, you know, we have, we have a rehab in his town. And uh, he was interested to, to, to meet us and talk about what we could do. And over the course of that supposed to be 30-minute chat, we ended up talking for two and a half hours uh, about how he was so sick of seeing, you know, Somebody overdose, hit him with Narcan, come back later, hit him with Narcan again, come back later. Just one shift three or four times. And he was like, man, what can we do to really curb this crisis? And it was just, what can we do? And we were spitballing. And uh, the, the crazy idea of just, like, helping people at the most yeah, base what, level. What a concept. Came up. And yeah. it's so simple that it should be easy. But it was so not easy because we had, uh, you know, you have to get a district attorney on board because district attorneys are the ones who file all the charges and, you know, are in charge of that stuff here, at least in Pennsylvania. And uh, our district attorney at the time was somewhat on board, uh, but he wasn't gung ho about it. Um, and then we actually had an election that came up, oh, geez, two, three years ago or two years ago. I don't remember what year it was. And the two candidates, uh, the one Democratic candidate was talking about using some crazy model from somewhere. And I don't even know what the heck that guy was talking about. But whatever it was, wasn't going to be very effective, you know, in our local community. Right. <laughs> and the Republican candidate who ended up becoming our DA, uh, Heather Adams, who's our first female DA. Wonderful, wonderful human. Uh, she was on board from the second she heard about it. I mean, she was literally just as many people as we could divert from the justice system to get them help. She was on board from day one. And, you know, just the weird fact that I'm, I'm still, you know, the convicted felon, quote, junkie, whatever you want to call it, uh, you know, sitting down with these people who have influence and who have power, I think alone is a testament to the power of recovery because, Previously, these are the people shipping me off to jail. You know, previously, these are the people who are, you know, <laughs> putting me in a cage and locking me in a box. And, and now I get to help prevent other people from having to go to that box. And uh, I couldn't be much more excited about how that stuff's going. That's a hell of a deal, man. Yeah. yeah. That's a hell of a deal. So tell us your story. How, how did you... Where did it all begin? How did it get different? What did you do to change? 
Well, well, you got a little bit of time, Drew. Let's do it, man. <laughs> You've done speaker meetings. You know how this goes. I, I have <laughs> too many of them on Zoom lately. So uh, uh, I will hold on. We will let's let's put a pin in your story for a second because that is something I do want to ask you. Like how how has the twelve step recovery community fared throughout the lockdowns and all of that in your area? Uh, it, it's gone pretty strong. I mean, uh, there were a couple couple of meetings that I don't know if they fully closed down a hundred percent, but uh, everybody jumped onto the Zoom thing pretty quickly, and for the most part, it's opened up to more interesting speakers because you can pull them from real far away and uh, you know still hear them, right? And technically see them, even though it's a little awkward and a little strange, and you don't have that one-on-one personal contact and a lot of the stuff that I really valued in, in 2007 when I first came around, you know, just having people that were near me and they were mm-hmm. willing to be near me and weren't afraid that I was going to steal their electronics, uh, you know, like that stuff spoke volumes to me because uh, I'm a skilled electronics thief, you know, back <laughs> in the day with DVDs. And... <laughs> I, man, right there with you, Chris. Right but yeah, we've been we've been doing pretty well over here, and uh, you know, I am glad to hear there's that. There's a whole generation of new people to recovery that hadn't even been to an in-person meeting because they got sober during this crazy time, and I'm excited for all of those people because what's cool is if you're one of them, ten or fifteen years from now, you might be rocking out on a podcast and get to tell the story about how you didn't even go to a meeting for the first nine months or ten months or eleven months or whatever it might be. And, you just got to look at the positive side of everything. And I love it. Yeah, absolutely, man. Um, all right. So sorry to interrupted you for that, but go ahead. Tell us your story, man. You're good. You're good. I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, I mean, I was, uh, I was born in this little tiny place called Emmaus, Pennsylvania, which is just South of Allentown, which is another place you probably haven't heard of because you're in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, <laughs> Whichever Oklahoma City, of. Oklahoma What's City, that? actually, Oklahoma City, but you're in Oklahoma City, yeah, right in the middle, <laughs> central, central, <laughs> right? Yeah. All right, I was wrong. My my no, geography of Oklahoma is pretty poor, so I I have no idea where your state is on the map, sir. Like I, <laughs> it's, it's over dude, here I don't know on the east coast, somewhere over yonder. Yeah, it's a big old funny looking state. Uh-huh. And uh, they tax us a lot, <laughs> like a lot, a lot. Yeah, it's like mini California, yeah. basically, for taxes. Yeah. That's uh, but that's an aside. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I grew up in this nice little town. It was just a little suburban joint. Uh, great spot, you know. Great quote education, and you can't can't see the air quotes if you're listening to this, but I'm using air quotes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> and you know theoretically speaking i had everything i needed uh, externally to make whatever i wanted happen with the world you know i had a good i still have a good mom and dad uh you know we had a house we had you know everything and dogs i had food lots of food you can't see it because you know audio but uh right true you can see that i'm a large man you know, <laughs> I had everything that I needed, uh, but for some weird reason, from the second I could remember anything, I felt like something was real off with me internally. And internally, 
I could never, ever on my best day put to words what was wrong or what was going on inside. And uh, many years later now, I can share with you at least a couple of the symptoms that I experienced back then. Uh, A couple of the things that I like to talk about specifically are, for some reason, I felt super awkward in every social situation that I was in. So if I was in a room with a ton of people I didn't know, I was mortified, man. I felt like there was just some kind of like disconnect between me and them. And no matter who it was, I felt that odd disconnect, but I could never put words to what it was. And worse than that, if I was in a room with people I did know, you know, my friends, I still felt that weird disconnect where I just wasn't comfortable. I wasn't okay with anything. Uh, worse than that, if I was in a room with my family, people that love me more than anything, I still felt that same weird, like, almost alien feeling uh, that I still can't fully put to words, but it existed. Uh, another thing that I struggled with was I could never sleep at night because my brain was always moving 8 billion miles a second. I'd be sitting up as a little kid, 6, 7 years old, and I'd be thinking about everything under the sun, things that were real, things that weren't real, things that could be real, things that might possibly be real. I'd like 15 different, uh, you know, maps in my head of like, what would happen if a burglar came in? You know, where am I going to go? Am I going to fly out the window? Am I going to punch? <laughs> am I going to fight him? Like, what's going to happen? <laughs> and I'm like six years old and I'm freaking out, you know, right. like all night long. I can never sleep. And what really sucked is I had to go to this place called school. And, you know, where ah. I'm from, school started real early in the morning. I didn't do very well in the morning because. I was up all night long thinking about nothing. <laughs> and it was terrible up until I was about 13 years old. And I found this thing called alcohol. And I went to a wedding and the wedding uh, was just like, a, I don't know if you guys have like fire halls out there. It's Not that I'm aware of. It's basically the cheapest place a human can rent to gather. Okay. Here in Pennsylvania. So just picture like a, a room that you rented just because. That's where this okay. wedding was when I was 13. Okay. <laughs> and uh, at the wedding, there were a whole lot of adults laughing and dancing and having a great time. And I was not having any fun whatsoever. Right. Uh, I was miserable, hiding in a corner, just kind of wishing I was anywhere else on earth. And I went to um, the open bar because I was 13 years old and you know, probably had facial hairs, you know, large, you could say. Right. And I, I went up to the open bar and I drank and I repeated the process and I repeated the process again and I repeated the process again. And over the course of drinking the alcohol in that open bar, the single greatest thing in all 13 years of my life occurred is suddenly I felt very comfortable in a situation that I was previously very uncomfortable in. <laughs> my mind wasn't racing. I was just completely okay. I knew everything that I was going to say was perfect and just, it was great. And so I effectively made it my goal to obtain alcohol as often as I possibly could from that second on, because without alcohol, my life was trash and with alcohol, my life was awesome. So it went on like that for a little while. And this thing happened where I was drinking a lot and it wasn't producing the effect it used to. Damn it. So now I'm drinking a ton, probably enough to kill small people. And like, it's not working. My mind is still racing. I'm still uncomfortable. That feeling is back, even though I'm drinking. 
And so I got introduced to some other scary stuff that you probably don't have in Oklahoma City, like marijuana. I know you're terrified of marijuana. <laughs> we uh, got we have medical marijuana now, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah, we, cool. we we we're we're catching up, but yeah, we have that over here too. Uh, it's just, I know it's been priced out to the point where the black market is probably stronger than it was previously. <laughs> oh, really? Really? Yeah. yeah. The taxes—they okay. love taxes over here. That sucks, man. That they sucks. love the taxes. Tom right, Wolf, so- the governor, he loves taxes. Hopefully, he listens to this and realizes. <laughs> Lay up off my boy Chris, Mr. Wolf. Come on now. Yeah, stop taxing me, man. Come on, Kill Tom. Him. Not cool, Tom. Not cool. He's not going to listen to this, and he's still going to tax everybody. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, so I've already forgotten more or less where I was. Uh, I'm sorry. You said about pot. Oh, you found you found weed. You, you found that's weed. All right. Yeah, that's right. I got introduced to marijuana, and this weird thing happened is when I smoked it, it made me feel really good. It made me eat some Doritos and, you know, turn my eyes red. I loved it. It was great. And it made that feeling go away. And it made my m- mind at peace uh, for a little while. And then, unfortunately, that stopped producing the effect it did at the beginning. And I got introduced to some psychedelics and some pharmaceuticals and some other cool stuff and some cocaine. Um, and, you know, all of those things were great. They did for me what I needed them to do for a period of time. And after a while, each of those things stopped producing the effect that they started to. Right. And so I had to move on to the, the final step, the final rung of the ladder, you know, which was heroin. And uh, I swore up and down that I would never, ever, ever, ever touch heroin because heroin is the worst. You know, I've seen people die from it, uh, not at the rate that people have been dying recently, but I'd seen a few people die from it back then. I've seen it send people upstate, you know, penitentiary for a long time. I've seen it destroy lives. I've seen just all this terrible stuff. So I drew the proverbial treatment center line in the sand and I said, I will never, ever try that. No matter how bad my life gets, I'm never touching heroin. And weirdly enough, I was at a keg party and a guy walked up to me with a bag of heroin. He said, Chris, you want to try this? And I said, yes. Yeah. I mean, there was no... No minute for me to stop and call my closest advisors. There was no minute for me to write out gratitude lists. There was no <laughs> minute for me to do any of that stuff. I said, yes. And what happened when I consumed the heroin was the greatest thing that happened in all 18 years of my life. Is it took my mind and it rendered it completely incapable of processing a thought. And it took that awful feeling inside of me and it crushed it. And from that second on, long story, super short. So I made it my goal to obtain heroin as often as I possibly could. Then I ran into this dilemma. I feel like this dilemma probably hits any heroin user nationwide. Because I needed money to continue (laughs) what I was doing. Now, I was a a waiter by trade because, you know, that's just what all of us cool kids do is wait tables. And for some reason... Uh, heroin took me to a place where I was just incapable of waiting tables for more than $10 at a time because I would get $10 and I would disappear to the city and I would go find a bag of heroin, you know? So I would go through job after job after job after job. And, you know, a lot of the places didn't like it when you show up, throw up in a trash can, take a four hour lunch break, come back like nothing ever happened over and over and over (laughs) and over. Uh, so I was pretty unemployable. Uh, So I had to start doing stuff like, uh, you know, real, real tough guy like me is, uh, you know, I t- take things from my mom. 
take things from my dad uh, and go sell them so I can get heroin. After a while, uh, they got naturally upset missing their items. <laughs> and so yeah. they gave me the option uh, to either get out of their house or go to treatment. And at that point, it was probably 2005, I agreed to go to detox. Uh, they set me up with one of those beautiful county-funded you know, rehabs. Uh, and I use that term very loosely in yeah. some of these cases. Yeah. And they sent me to this detox that the county of Lehigh graciously paid for. And I was terrified going into this place because I was about to separate myself from the only thing in the world that made me feel okay. And I was pissing my pants terrified to go to detox for the first time i was 18 and some change you know and um the first time i really left home for much of anything and i was terrified it was awful and i went in there and uh you know i got the suboxone was kind of a new thing so we were using that as the taper and whatever i stayed there for 10 or 15 days and i came came up with some really good ideas as to how i was going to keep myself sober when i left because that is the point of going to rehab, right? You need to right. figure out how you're going to stay sober when you leave. And uh, my plans were great. I was going to get a job. I was going to work a lot of hours and get back with my girlfriend. Everything was going to work perfectly. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I left against the facility's advice, of course. Great move. Yes. <laughs> and I hitchhiked back home. Yeah. And uh, I had no idea what I was up against at 18 years old. My family had no idea what I was up against. Uh, you know, we just kind of thought now I'm physically sober. I can properly exercise the use of my will. I can go back to work. I can be a good son, a good brother, a good human. Unfortunately, the minute I got the keys to my life back in my hands, I found heroin <laughs> right away. And it's funny to me 15 years later because it just is so illogical and it makes no sense that for 15 days I was sitting in an uncomfortable bed thinking about how I never wanted to touch this shit again. And here I am, the first chance that I have, and I go right back to it. And it was a little bit tougher this time because my parents, uh, they, they, knew, they knew what it was hitting for. So they hid all the DVDs, you know, and they uh, uh, hid the tools and, and did all the stuff. And so I had to go cruising into other people's houses and take their belongings. And unfortunately, here in the beautiful Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, it is super illegal to walk in other people's houses and take their stuff. <laughs> uh, so within 30 days of leaving that treatment center, uh, I was getting arrested on felony burglary charges. Ooh. And uh, uh, mind you, 30 days prior, I'm peeing my pants, terrified to go to detox. Now right. I'm going to jail. And all I can tell you about jail like at that point was what I knew from TV and movies and like Bubba's coming to get you and shit is going down, you know, like yeah. I'm six, five, you know, 300 plus, And I know Bubba's at least seven foot four fifty. Right. He's waiting right. to give me a shoulder massage, you know, like I am horrified to go yeah. into jail for the first time. <laughs> and I got in and there was no Bubba. Uh, but I sat there for a hundred plus days, whatever it was. And shock might shock you, but, I came up with some ideas as to how I was going to keep myself sober when I got out of jail because that was the point, uh, you know, to be corrected and stuff. And it might shock you, but my plan was this. When I get out of jail, I'm going to get a job and work a lot of hours and get back with my girlfriend and everything will work perfectly. Because, <laughs> don't laugh at me, Drew. I'm sensitive. And it's going to uh, work this time 
because I've been sober for like 150 days and nobody's ever done that. That's all right. <laughs> you know, like I have to be able to be successful at this point because I've been sober 150 days. Like clearly no drugs have entered my body. So that right. can't be the problem. No. But I got out of jail and I'll tell you what, within at least an hour, I had relapsed. <laughs> and I was dumbfounded because for 150 days I laid on an even more uncomfortable bed. And I thought to myself, what can I do to live better and never have to come back here? And I couldn't. I could not physically do that. And so what happened was I had relapsed. And now I had a PO. I don't know if they have POs floating around over in Oklahoma, but over here, those POs want you to pee in a cup. The problem was I had already relapsed. Yeah. <laughs> so didn't work the way that the PO wanted me to. So the PO said, Chris, listen, you're a nice guy. I'll give you seven days to clean this up. And uh, <laughs> mathematics started in my head right away. <laughs> so I was like, I got, I got four days to continue what I'm doing. Yes. I have to stop. Yes. And those four days slid by, man. They slid by so effortlessly. And I woke mm -hmm. up the morning. I knew I had to stop, and I did not feel good. And I knew that the only thing that was going to make me feel better was heroin. Mm -hmm. And I knew that if I used heroin, I was going to go back to jail. And we will establish right now that I wanted no part of ever going back to jail, ever. But for some reason, I was physically incapable of not doing the thing that was going to send me there. So I figured it was okay because I'll drink a ton of water, tons of water, and I'll beat their test in three days. No big deal. So I went about my business and I came back home. And I woke up the next morning. I knew I had T minus two days to go see this PO. And uh, I didn't I didn't feel very good. <laughs> and so I, I figured it was cool because if I eat enough niacin and vitamins, I'll beat the guy's test in two days. No big deal. And so I went about my business. And I came back home and I woke up the next morning. And I knew I had T minus one days. That's 24 hours. So I had to go see this PO. And I really don't want to go back to jail. But for some reason, I cannot stop doing heroin. Cannot. No matter what consequences are coming down the pike, I'm physically unable to stop using this stuff. And so it's, it's cool because I figure if I drink some bleach tomorrow morning, I'll beat this guy's test. No big deal. Right? I handle it. <laughs> Makes sense to me at that science, time. Science, man. That's just it, basic science right there. It's basic you know? science. So I went about my business. I came back home. I knew I had a couple hours to go see this PO and uh, I couldn't stop no matter what. So I decided to take some other people's stuff to a pawn shop and run to North Carolina because we've established that I have no interest in going back to jail and I'm, I'm out. Right. And if you don't even know where Pennsylvania is on a map, North Carolina is very <laughs> Right? And okay. here's where it gets fun because within 10 days of running from parole, I got arrested in Buffalo, New York. Now, for those of you who are really bad at geography, Buffalo is nowhere near North Carolina. Buffalo is nowhere near anything. <laughs> Except for Canada and Niagara Falls. Right. Uh, so I got arrested 10 days later in Buffalo, New York. Now I'm in Buffalo. And for those of you who are from Buffalo, I apologize. I'm <laughs> You're actually from Buffalo. I don't hate Buffalo. I love Buffalo. Uh, but it was really cold because it was October. 
And uh, I was detoxing the worst detox of my entire life. And I got hooked into Erie County Correctional Facility overlooking Lake Erie. Beautiful spot. It was overflowing with humans. So we were all in a gymnasium on little boats. There were about 150 of us all detoxing, shitting our pants, peeing ourselves with one toilet, one sink, no shower. Five days. Oof. Uh, that was the most unpleasant experience that I ever had. I mean, there's nothing fun about detoxing with one toilet, one sink, and 149 other people doing the same thing. Nah. It was horrendous. Nah, man. Yeah. Now, you would think that that would be a sufficient amount of suffering and pain to just pull myself up by the bootstraps and say, listen, I'm going to fix this. And in my mind, that's what I was saying because it was so what happened was eventually the state of New York said, get out of here, you know, uh, and they sent me back to Allentown, Pennsylvania, where I got to see the same judge I'd seen before. And that judge, Iwaji said, Chris, you're 19. Uh, you just got charges in North Carolina, charges in Buffalo. You know, you're on parole. You never should have left. You're going to sit in jail for a while. <laughs> but after your time's up, I'm going to send you to rehab. Real progressive judge for the time. God love that man. Um, unfortunately, the rehab that the county wheel spun and sent me to was not even a rehab at all. It was a therapeutic community. I don't know if you guys have those out yonder in, in the Midwest. I haven't heard of that. What is that? But let me tell you about it. You're going to love this. Okay. It's a Department of Corrections kind of thing where you learn to change your behaviors over 30 to 90 days. So I learned such important things as how to keep my shirt tucked in, uh, oh. how to sit in a corner and wear a dunce cap if I did something wrong for 24 hours straight with no bathroom breaks. Uh, wow. Sing in front of people, the whole community to embarrass you. I mean, this is this is the treatment that the court gave me. Dude. But now I'm 19 years old, man, and I am pumped to get out of jail, to get out of the system and be okay. And I left there with a certificate that said I was corrected. I had been sober for a year at this point after sitting in jail and going to this place, and blah, 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 blah. And I got out and I relapsed almost instantaneously. And I can't tell you how or why at that point, because I am just broken. I did not want any part of heroin, any part of anything. And I could not, not do it. And now I had two POs because they know me. They know what I'm about. They want me to pee in cups more than I pee in toilets. It's awful. And it really just started the 60-day period of my life. Not even I'm not even good enough at life to stay out of jail for more than 60 days at a clip. And it started the 60 days where I was just absolutely hopeless. There was no hope on the horizon for me. I was 20 years old. And I was watching all of my friends from high school go off and develop relationships with other humans and go to college and do this cool stuff. And I'm like homeless couch surfing, living on a park bench with a squirrel. You know, that squirrel didn't even like me. It was like just a bad situation, you know. And, you know, I dipped and dodged and ducked into all the psych wards, methadone clinics boxing clinics, everything possible that I could do to avoid going back to jail, to avoid 
the life that I was living. And eventually, on August 27, 2007, I got arrested walking down a street, uh, and I had a hypodermic instrument in my pocket. And I can tell you, uh, many years later, that I'm pretty confident that uh, the Allentown Vice Squad was sent to separate me from that life, because I had no ability whatsoever to live life on my own. Uh, every time I got the keys to my life in my hands, I failed. I've proved that to myself over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And I went to jail again. I saw the same judge again. He was like, dude, get sick of seeing you. I'm sure he didn't say dude, but like right. paraphrased. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> of seeing you. So after your time's up, I'm going to send you to rehab again. And I was like, cool. That's going to wow. work. You know, <laughs> great. Right. Uh, and so eventually he sent me to this rehab. It wasn't a, fabulous rehab it sucked it was a county you know rehab uh but i went down there and uh really didn't give one one care about anything because i was just like pretty confident i was on a vicious cycle where i was going to get out of jail relapse get out of jail relapse get out of jail relapse die hopefully somewhere in there because my life sucked right and uh man uh, at that rehab they shipped me to a halfway house afterwards I got to this halfway house and uh, I got linked up with some people that taught me a different way to live. And there was a group of young, excited guys who were just not shooting dope, not doing anything. Uh, they were having fun. I was not having fun. I was at a halfway house. I was hating my life. Um, and, you know, long story, super short. Uh, they took me through the 12 steps. They showed me a completely different way to live and a completely different way to exist. And uh, my life's been pretty great, pretty great ever since. I mean, a lot of people, it's pretty cliche. They probably say stuff like that. Um, I mean, here's the thing, man. When you're ready, you're ready. It's like that light bulb goes off. Like, yeah. And I don't even know if I was ready because I could tell you I'm going through this process. I'm doing this stuff literally so I can just stay out of jail for a little bit longer. Right. And I didn't believe any of it was going to work. I didn't think the 12 steps were a real thing. You read those, they make no sense. You right. Know? Right. Uh, I'm pretty sure if like, 12 magical steps like would, would have saved me, I would have taken those things like day one. But the way the information was presented to me at that halfway house, just shifted my perception and i started to realize this stuff like uh, i got a job and i showed up and i didn't throw up in any trash cans you know uh, i didn't disappear after a ten dollar bill uh, i started to call my mom and like care a little bit about how she was doing a little bit less about how i was doing i made amends and repaired situations with my little brothers and my family and uh, it was it was kind of wild i moved out of the halfway house into an apartment I wasn't homeless. I wasn't doing any of that stuff. And really nothing fundamentally had changed other than I went through the 12 steps and really had a legitimate spiritual awakening from what I was previous. And, you know, in the, in the interim 14 years or whatever it's been, I've been able to develop some really cool, uh, you know, passions like real estate and business, and, you know, all the things that have, really blown my life up way, way bigger than it needs to be. <laughs> and right. none of that would be possible if I didn't link up with those guys and get this education on how to live life as a person in recovery. 
and walk through difficult situations, walk through good situations, but be peaceful and happy internally, no matter what is going on. I don't know how you could want anything more. I'm literally getting goosebumps sitting here thinking about it. Um, and I just literally love spending as much time as I can talking about that and sharing that with people because if anybody is listening to this thing and struggling, there's a really, really free, really, really easy way to get out of it. Um, and I'm not saying that you necessarily have to take the exact path that I took, uh, but there's a lot of ways into recovery. And yeah. without recovery, I would certainly be dead. With recovery, I am very much alive. Without a doubt, man. So that's that in a nutshell. I mean, you know, I skipped a lot of stuff, but I that's mean, a nutshell. I get it. here's and there's so many parts where I'm just like nodding. People can't see the video, but I'm like nodding my head because like it's funny how we so many of us have similarities in our story. You know, never always wanting to be somebody else, somewhere else doing something else, never fitting in where we stood. I can't tell you how many people that's their thing. That's why that's what sets a lot of us off on that path of self-destruction unknowingly, you know, we find that thing and it's fun until it isn't, yeah. you know, like, <laughs> well put. Yeah. Well it's, put. it's like really fun. And then it's just like one day, not fun. And you're like, what the hell happened here? Um, I also identify a lot with you talking about like the second you left, because I would sit in jail, man. And I would have the same thoughts. Like, Oh, it's going to be different this time. You know, like not using again. No, under no circumstances. And within an hour, as soon as that fresh air hit my lungs, ah, it wasn't that bad. <laughs> you know, it wasn't There's that no bad. There's no logic to that None. mental twist, man. There's just never going to be. And and so for, for people like us to be able to explain to somebody else, they won't get it. They don't understand that, you know, thank God for people who haven't been there, but still show compassion towards people like us, towards people who continue or struggle for a very long time, you know? Um, yeah. Thank God for that. Because here's the thing. AA never would have came into existence. None of the 12 step meetings would have came into existence without the help of people outside. Yeah. I mean, that's just the reality. Um, and it really fills me with a extreme sense of joy and appreciation that you guys have seen the paradigm shift that you are with drug policy in your neck of the woods. I hope to God one day we see it out here. Um, you can do it. You can make that happen, Drew. It is on the agenda. Uh, you, you, you did kind of open my eyes to an avenue that I hadn't considered. And that is getting to know some people in law enforcement in my area. Um, I never being a libertarian, it's almost like, you know, like, I'm like, mm, don't want to talk to the state, but that's a good avenue. So, uh, yeah, you opened my eyes on that one. You have to, you have to remember. And the difficult part is that like, while we all dislike government uh, because it's terrible and it sucks at its core, yeah, the people 
on the local level for the most part that are in politics really for the most part <laughs> again for the most part <laughs> want to help their community and i mean you know some people use the the local elections as like a stepping stone to greater things and stealing more money and whatever it might be but a lot of the people that i've encountered in local government truly are actually just good people who want to serve their communities and i think it's a bold strategy to think of policy change on a huge macro scale because it's not real it's not real it's not going to happen anytime right. soon right. Uh, unless the you know huge corporations and pharmaceutical companies suddenly want it to i don't think it's going to happen <laughs> right um, but what you can do on a local level is meet with your district attorney meet with your police chiefs meet with your everybody meet with anybody i literally take meetings that i don't even know if they have a purpose sometimes and i just <laughs> go and, and meet new people and get out there and uh, you can definitely do it i mean there's no probable reason that we're able to do this here in lancaster county uh, we're in an extremely uh, republican dominated very red conservative county and we are probably now the most progressive county in the entire state of Pennsylvania. And there are 67 of those because our state is ridiculously large. <laughs> um, but, you know, this is stuff that, that speaks to people. This is stuff that is so real and so valuable. Um, just creating programs and showing that you care and spending the time uh, to be around people I have no doubt that you can do that. No doubt. Because you have the passion. You really just have to put it into practical application. Well, I will be uh, guaranteedly reaching out to you for some pointers on some stuff because I'm really glad you've walked this path ahead of me. So that way I can kind of, you know, tug on your coattail a little bit and ask you a couple of questions. Um, I'm happy to help you, man. It's, it's so great to watch. I mean, even on day one, Day one of the program, we had uh, had just done the police training. So every police department that comes on board, we give them a one-hour training on the brain science of addiction so they understand what it actually is. And most had never heard this information because it's fairly new. Uh, and we do that and we talk about a continuum of care and what it looks like to bring somebody from hopelessly addicted to living a life of purpose. And it's just an hour training on the basics of addiction and uh, how they can use it now, this new program in their daily job functions. And on day one, we didn't know anything because we had no idea how this was going to go because it's right. it was new. And uh, later that night, so we did the training at 4 a.m. because police always work weird shifts. And at 4 a.m. we did the training. Now fast forward to 3 a.m. later that night, so 23 hours later, uh, our first call came through. Uh, from a, a sergeant in the one police department that we started with. And he responded to a domestic dispute with an individual and uh, his wife. And the wife apparently drank a lot and ran away. So she was found at 3 a.m. behind a dumpster behind a Kmart in our little town here. And... Um, I guess when the police officer, sergeant, great guy who's since retired, uh, when he shined his flashlight in her face, 
she woke up and swung at him. You know, because that's like what you do when you get woken up by a flashlight when you're behind a dumpster at Kmart 3 a.m. Right, right. You, know, you throw a punch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so what happened was he had just had this training earlier in the day and he called me on my cell phone because we didn't even have like a phone line set up or anything yet. And he said, Chris, I got this, I got this lady here and she is rough. Can you get out here and help? And so I grabbed up the one certified recovery specialist we had and we whipped over to the police station. Turns out this lady was a nurse, like a registered nurse. And uh, if she had gotten those charges that night, she would have lost her nursing license. Wow. And I knew from day one that this thing had power, that this thing had merit. And if we were going to start treating sick people like sick people and getting them help, amazing things could happen. To my knowledge, that woman is now two plus years sober probably a much better nurse, probably a much better mother, probably a much better wife, probably a much better everything because she doesn't drink anymore because she doesn't do that stuff anymore. And uh, I mean, that's just, that was day one story, December, 2018. That's beautiful. I got goosebumps, man. That is powerful, powerful stuff. I can't imagine the, the fulfillment that must give you. You know, I mean, because that, that here's the thing, man. I I have been asked to speak at meetings many times. I've been at, I've gotten on podcasts and told my story. All that that's great, that's cool, fun, whatever. The most the the most close I've ever felt to a higher power or something bigger than me is that those moments, right? Those moments that you're sitting down with somebody else. Those moments that you're truly helping someone, and you see that light pop that is the jam you cannot better than any dope on the planet better than any bottle of booze that is the jam right there yeah million million percent and you can find those moments in anything Uh i mean they don't have to be special wrapped up in a bow and handed to you i mean this this moment could be one of those moments because somebody listening could literally take the first step to their new life just because of you, you and I having a chat on this stream yard thing. You know? Yeah. Well, let's, well, let's segue into something I do with everybody who shares their story and let's talk to that one person. What do you want to tell them? So that person who's struggling. That's a good one. That's a good question, man. Uh, and I talk to a lot of people. A lot of people who are in a lot of different situations in their lives. And I really, really have to say that what you can see right now is probably pretty rough and probably pretty ugly. But if you kind of abandon your own ship and jump onto the ship of recovery with the rest of us, we can guide you literally to places you never would have imagined. 2007, if you had told me that... I would be a licensed real estate agent with a convicted uh, felon burglar, you know, situation. I would have told you you were insane. Like I literally would have told you you were insane. If you would have told me I'd be the CEO of a licensed medical facility with a felony, uh, I would have told you you were completely insane. If you right. told me that I would sleep well every single night and not sit up and lament the, you know, current Biden administration. I would have told you you were completely insane. 
you know, if you would have told me that I would be happy, legitimately comfortable in almost any setting, I would have told you you were insane. And so if you're listening to this and you think that I'm insane, you might be right. But also, if you abandon ship and jump on board with some path to recovery, I guarantee you that you can live the most awesome and ridiculous life. Because I am literally sitting upstairs in my house right now. Uh, But like, I have a house. I used to live on a bench, you know, like I have yeah, dude. so many things and so many people that love me and so many people that are here for me. And I am able to love and able to be here for so many other people. Think of the people that you can help if you get help yourself. And it really just starts with a phone call, a text, uh, an email. I'm sure Drew can put my, my email up on this thing. And like, if you want to email me and say something. I'm more than happy to help you, even if you're in Oklahoma City, even if you're in Tulsa, even if you're in some weird town in Oklahoma I've never heard of. <laughs> I could still do my best to help you. Uh, so, you know, that's what I want to say. Don't shortchange yourself uh, by living living that life that you've been living. Very eloquently put. I uh, know about that. <laughs> it, it, hit, it hit the nail on the head. I had a group of people I used to go and do H&Is with, uh, hospitals and institutions, you know, doing the little panels. And every Saturday morning, we would go to the local detox and do this meeting. And we had this running bet where whoever got a phone number or act, not just a phone number, but got one of the guys that we talked to inside the facility to call them, they had to pay for lunch for everybody the next so it was just kind of one of those things. And so a buddy of mine, he started doing this thing where he'd bring a hundred dollar bill in with him and he'd pop it and he'd say, listen, call me when you leave here. We will work all 12 steps. If you do not have a spiritual awakening, this hundred bucks is yours. <laughs> I thought it was cheating. It was, but it, it worked. I still think it was cheating, but I mean, he was right. He never had to give the hundred dollar bill away. And, you know, we, uh, we ended up having to buy his lunch, which is, <laughs> you know, insane, but it's a pretty uh, good story. I might actually try to use that. <laughs> it works, man. Like, I mean, it's just, you know, whatever gets them to call. Cause that's the thing, man. You know, you get out like we talked about and you know, it's like it, if you have the prospect for a hundred bucks, you know, maybe that's enough. Who knows? But, um, Christopher, I cannot tell you how much gratitude I have that that you uh, sat down with me tonight. You shared your story. You talked about some really wonderful stuff. Um, Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to do that. My pleasure, Drew. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, man. It's uh, it's good to chat with you. Yeah. uh, Anytime. And you always have an open invitation to come on if you have a new thing that you're starting up. Cause like we, we learned by sharing how this stuff works with one another and who knows, man, the, the next blueprint blueprint for addiction recovery could be starting up because a result of this episode, who knows, man. So it's totally possible. It's yeah. Totally possible. And uh, you know, it's kind of funny you said that because we about a month and a half ago, uh, we were doing a, a thing with one of the local police chiefs here and he was just, outside after the event that we had, he was talking about his frustration with the lack of mental health 
um, treatment and the lack of stuff that his officers could do to help people who had mental illness. And uh, he was telling me about this work group, this government style work group that he'd been on for 24 months, 24 meetings, nothing happened. And I mean, if I waste 24 anythings, I'm going to be frustrated. You know? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, so he was like, dude, why, why can't we just do something like we did with Second Chance? And I was like, well, you know, maybe we could. And literally later that day, I talked to my team about it. My team of Blueprints, awesome, awesome people. And they were like, wow, we really should do something like that. Within five days, we had developed a comprehensive program to assist police with people who are having mental illness, any kind of mental struggle or anything like that, uh, and get them access to the care that they need to. So uh, we're, we're literally always working on something new, always working on something interesting. <clears throat> My hope is, I mean, we were able to do that as a pilot over the weekends um, because it was literally just like our staff <laughs> responding to the calls and trying to figure it out. But, you know, really police need to focus on stuff that police do, which is, you know, protecting us and making sure I don't get shot everywhere I go. Um, And really, you know, when it comes down to uh, helping somebody with a problem with mental health or or addiction or whatever you want to say, I mean, these guys and and gals that are in those uniforms usually want to help. I mean, I don't know too many, Uh, police officers that I've met and I've met literal hundreds of them uh, over the course of this program. And not one of them was like, I got this job because of the benefits because of the pay. You know, they all say I got this job because I wanted to help people. I got this job because I want to have an impact on my community. I got this job because of this, you know, whatever it is, there's passion and there's fire underneath that. And if you can engage them on a level that they can feel in their hearts and and give them that purpose and give them a tool to utilize. I mean, man, you're going to have some amazing experiences and uh, just some of the, some of the most unlikely police officers uh, that when I first met them, I judged them immediately. I was like, ah, there's no way this guy's ever going to (laughs) call, you know, he's an angry old crop cut, you know, just typical police officer. And almost every single time that person, is one of the first people to call. Man, that that's part. just like in meetings, dude. You cannot call them, bro. You get you see the newcomers, you're like, oh, they ain't gonna make it. And sure as shit, you know, mm-hmm. 10 years down the line, they're getting their 10-year medallion. And you're I was like, definitely one of those guys that they said there was no way that guy's gonna stick around more than a couple months. And uh, yeah, man. Here we are, you know, decade and a half later, baby. Still here. <laughs> Still doing the thing. Well, yeah. well Chris, where can people find you? How, how can they get a hold of you? And I, and I will be putting your email and all that also in the show notes. But yeah, I would I would say give me give me a shout via email uh, if you want. Check out blueprintsrecovery.com. That's plural blueprintsrecovery.com. Uh, that's Blueprints website. There's also secondchancepa.com. That is uh, for the police initiative specifically. Uh, there's also another one for the mental health initiative. I don't even know what that website is, to be honest with you. Um, it's a fairly new thing. So I don't well, have I, much time to spend on that. But those two I, websites and my email address 
uh, you can certainly reach out to me anytime. I'm questionably responsive. 10-4, I'll tell you this. I would love to have you back on to talk about the mental health thing. Once you guys have had some time in the seat with that, I, I am really, really interested in that part. Oh man, that, we had a we had a great. I'll tell you one quick one quick story. Night number one, uh, myself and uh, one of the counselors were doing ride-alongs with the department, and just kind of seeing what was up, seeing what was happening, spending some time, and this uh, you know just one of those things that we do. And uh, this was night one of the mental health uh, response thing, and. I was like, oh, yeah, maybe nothing will happen. Maybe something will happen. And lo and behold, uh, we were out helping a, an old senile guy find his car at a, a grocery store because he lost his car. I don't know if he ever had a car. We're trying to help him find it. And uh, a call came over the radio that there was a person standing on a bridge, uh, literally two minutes from this grocery store where we were. And we were able to get over there within two minutes. And the young young man was standing on the the edge of the bridge and he was going to jump you know he had a rough day uh, he literally walked about 20 minutes to that bridge uh, so he had a pretty clear plan in mind of what he was going to do and uh, we were able to get there within two minutes and the officer uh, myself and the counselor were able to talk him down off of that ledge and uh, again on night one you know i just knew like there were clear signs that the stuff we were doing was real and the stuff that we were doing was impactful and uh you know i, I got stories for days <laughs> we got we could podcast for the rest of the night and uh we wouldn't even hit half of the fun that is awesome man i mean that's that's the stuff because i mean what you did what we mentioned those moments but what you don't mention is is all the times that like you almost get through to somebody but it just doesn't happen. You know, um, there's a lot of those moments too, but it's those moments where we get through, where we see that positive effect that keeps us going, man. Yeah. Um, God bless you for what you're doing, man. I, I, I am appreciative and I know that the members of your community are as well. So well, I appreciate you, that. Uh, you know, I wouldn't want to do anything else. I mean, this is, this is literally as cool as it gets for a guy like me. And, yeah, you know, I'm I'm pretty stoked, pretty stoked to be able to talk to somebody all the way in Oklahoma. Yeah, man, this is this is pretty pretty awesome, and nice to talk to somebody in Pennsylvania, wherever the hell that is. So, come on, man, get a map, <laughs> get a freaking map. I mean, I drive a concrete truck, dude. I only care about the metro area. Like, that's dude, it's 2021, man. Jump on the Google. Google, jump on the little Google. Now, I, I knew, I know it's northeast somewhere. It's over yonder, you know. It but, is over uh, yonder. We're right under New York. Okay, all right. And, so now, the, right to the west of that terrible little state, New Jersey. Ooh, yeah. Hey, there, there are some good people in Jersey, though. Blue Star Union. Shout out to you guys. Like, I don't know if you know who they are or not, but they, they do some awesome work out that way. I don't. But for the record, I don't hate New Jersey. We just have to dig on New Jersey because we're from Pennsylvania. As as it's written, you have yeah. to. <laughs> it's a legitimate rule. And yeah. also, uh, New Jersey drivers are the worst drivers. <laughs> you heard it here, guys. Yeah. All yeah. right. Well, Chris, thanks again, Brady. You have a good night, man. You too, Drew. Thanks, man. Yeah. And there you go. Great, great interview. Great story. A great person. 
You know, um, I love hearing about how people are affecting positive change in their area. Um, I also love hearing about people that were just like me who made it out and how we made it out. You know, um, that stuff is awesome. You know, there's there's something that can be said about running into a brick wall a million times before finally figuring it out. But, um, you know, Christopher's one of those cases. I am as well. And he's doing big things out there. So if you if any part of, you know, kind of what he's been doing organizational wise and all of that has piqued your curiosity, reach out to the guy. Super, super easy to talk to. Uh, just an all-around great guy, as you can tell. So uh, thanks again, Christopher, for coming on, and I look forward to having him on in the future. And with that, I, I you know, I don't really have a whole lot else going on. Oh, the Narcan Drive. We were able to raise $637 that got sent over to Stop Harm on Tulsa Streets. You guys may remember them from a couple of episodes back. They are going to be able, because they, they are members of a couple of different buyers clubs, um, but that will buy up to 637 doses of Narcan. That's a lot of lives that you guys helped save, and I appreciate you so much. Thanks for showing that this community cares and is here for addicts. So um, with that, I'm going to wrap it up. Gonna wrap it up, guys. Gonna go into the song of the day. And uh think today I'm just gonna go with Benjamin Todd's I Will Rise. This is he's also in Lost Dog Street Band. I think I've played some of his music before. But this is just one of those songs. He's somebody who struggled with addiction and you know getting sober throughout his entire life. And uh this song is is pretty much you know a testament to that it's just talking about rising up from the ashes dusting yourself off figuring this thing out after trying countless times uh but anyway without further ado here is benjamin todd i will rise oh it's hard to wake from feeling blue but I will rise I will rise And my hands may shake From lack of booze Oh, but I will rise I will rise And though I've fallen out Of space and time With honest lies Oh, I will rise I will rise And now I'm king of the hounds I wear shame like a crown And they're placing bets all over town on how I'll die But I'll rise And I grieve to death From losing
chasing you Oh, but I will rise I will rise Now I choke on ash like cheap perfume death of my own mind Oh, but I will rise I will rise And from the bottom of the well I hide Oh, but I will rise I will rise Now I'm king shame like a crown and they're placing bets all over town on how I'll die but I'll rise and I'll walk through hell and like the view oh but I will rise I'll rise And though your image of me now is skewed Oh, I will rise I will rise And I've given up my final time Oh, and I will rise Candle burns from either side. Oh, and I will rise. I will rise. Now I'm king of the hounds. I wear shame like a crown. And they're placing bets all over town.